Osiris. Welcome back to another episode of The Recovering Catholic. I'm your host, Katie Pruitt. I'm learning a lot about how the Bible can and should be used as a tool to promote good in the world. However, time and time again, we witness it being used as a weapon to abuse and oppress people. Today, I talked to Dr. Dark, a writer, an activist, a professor of theology at Belmont University, who in his spare time volunteers to teach at the Tennessee State Prison. Dark uses religion as a means to promote social justice and, as Public Enemy would put it, fight the power. Dark also happened to be my religion professor at Belmont at the time I was deeply struggling with my sexuality. He explained to me then and now how the clobber verses have been taken out of context, how politics and religion have become badly intertwined, and what it means to participate in a little something he calls good church. Okay. Thank you so much for doing this, Dr. Dark. Um, Very glad to be with you. Yes, I know. I, I've i run into you at Bonnaroo at multiple um, protest events this summer when right. festival season in Bonnaroo was canceled. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I just think, and the first time, obviously, um, I'll let people know that the first time I met you is that you were my religion professor at Belmont. Something that's really inspiring to me about you is that you are very proactive um, with social justice, like with your activism. I'm wondering um, what, I don't know, what inspires you to do that? Like, is it, do you feel as though, like, I don't know, that the Bible calls us to do things like that? Like, is is that your motivation for it? I do. I wouldn't say that the Bible is my only motivation, Um, but I like to say that the Bible is about justice or it's about nothing at all. Right. That's not me taking a shot at the Bible. That's me lifting up the Bible. The Bible obviously has come to function as a weapon um, Mm -hmm. in the hands of people who aren't reading it. Um, People who genuinely, as far as I can tell, have not read all or even much of it. Um, I think the very idea of using the Bible is a little bit like using um, Shakespeare or using Dolly Parton or using a Toni Morrison novel. I don't think the Bible properly understood can be used any more than art can be used or a song can be used. Um, I have a provocative description of the Bible, which I'll share. Well, I'll give you a few. I do believe the Bible, when read aloud and understood, is the word of God. But I also believe that the Bible is the composition notebook of a centuries-long caravan of asylum seekers. Mm. So the Bible is a collection of very different texts, songs, histories, stories, complaints, lamentations, letters, gospels, visions. I don't know how many things I just said, but I have a whole bunch 
whole bunch of different genres and lots of genres are represented in that big book um, that is so scary mm -hmm. and so formidable and so much of an idol in a way in our, in our world. Weird little quip. People swear on the Bible in yeah. court. Um, but if you take Jesus seriously, Jesus is this peasant philosopher who shows up in the four Gospels. Jesus commands people or instructs people to not swear, to not promise, to not pledge or make any oath. So it's one of the great ironies of the last couple of centuries mm. that people would swear on a book which contains very specific instruction to not swear on anything. So I say all that to say that the Bible is complicated. Um, sometimes people want to say the Bible says, to which I want to say the Bible can't say hmm. any more than Elton John's Greatest Hits Volume 2 can say. <laughs> Elton John's Greatest Hits Volume 2 is maybe 11 or 12 different songs. What do songs say? Well, that's a mystery. <laughs> what does any song right. But to take one of those songs, to quote an Elton John song off of Elton John's Greatest Hits Volume 2, and then say, Elton John, or excuse me, to then say, Elton John's Greatest Hits Volume 2 says, it's like, okay, no, no, you, that's not true. Um, might have been a character in a song. It right. might have been a song about something that he's no longer going through. So when I do that, I'm just bringing up this question of context, right. which is at work all the time. Somebody could take the transcript of this podcast and quote you or me and say, they said this, to which you would have to say, well, maybe they did, but we, we would have to listen to the context. It, right. it might have been a joke. It might have been a story. Yes. So it requires great care. But to double all the way back to your question, um, the Bible is one of many witnesses in my life that call me um, to take particular stands, to try to be honest, to try to stand in the way of terror and abuse. So I do feel called by God and by conscience, and sometimes both at once, um, to speak up and to be a witness. The instances, a recent instance in which you saw me at a protest down by the Capitol. Right, Ida B. Plaza, yeah, I remember. Yeah, that yeah. was me, and I'm, I'm 51. I was one of the oldest people there. When I started going to those protests, which were protesting all kinds of things, police violence, um, police brutality, a white supremacist terror idol, of Nathan Bedford Forrest inside the Capitol. Right. And it was basically a group of Tennesseans, mostly Tennesseans of color, who are asking to uh, speak to Governor Bill Lee and to speak to our representatives in the state legislature. Um, after I saw you there, the state legislator voted to make it illegal to gather outside the Capitol at night. Right. So instead of talking to us, they made it illegal to wait to talk to them. And um, that was evil. <laughs> I, yeah. I, say, I don't want to call anybody evil, but I do think that that legislation was evil. And so I did feel called to go down there. I realized after a while that I probably wasn't going to get arrested and it probably wasn't my job to get arrested. Because if I, as a white man, got arrested, and as a Belmont professor, I got arrested, suddenly the story is about the white Belmont professor getting right. arrested. My job right. was to be a witness um, when someone like Justin Jones and other activists got arrested. And part of my job was to tell um, state legislators, some of whom are younger than me, that when they depict the crowd as an angry mob, I can say on Twitter, actually, I was part of that crowd. And it None wasn't an angry mob. It right? wasn't an angry mob. It was mob. a peaceful stance to have a conversation. Yep. That's right. And right. so when they demonize us, or especially when they demonize Black people, it can be useful to have a 51-year-old white man there um, who, as it happens, has a PhD in religion and teaches at Belmont. Right. I have some privilege <laughs> there that I can use as currency 
in a righteous cause. Mm. So I do, I feel called, I, I haven't done a lot of that. And I do, I teach in prisons as well. So getting arrested is a little tricky for me because I don't want to undermine my own ability to go into the prisons and help people get college credit for their reading and writing. Um, but I do feel called in particular instances um, to place myself in the middle of some kind of tangle. Um, to well, be you can do what you said, which is to provide context. Cause That's right. You know, when legislators or people that want to paint it as an angry mob take yeah. it out of context and, yep. and paint it that way to people that weren't there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, yeah, the, talking about context as it pertains to the Bible is so, so important. And yeah. I remember in your class when, I can't, I can't remember what the assignment was, but I wrote some paper. Um, you did? I was, about um, how being gay and Christian is is not and should not be mutually exclusive, and yep. I was sort of struggling with this with that idea because my parents are having a hard time with me coming out. Um, I remember I kind I you know came to you after class and asked you um, I think about the clobber verses um, mm-hmm. and and what what does the Bible actually say about that and. Yeah. And I think your answer to me was somewhat along the lines of, well, it's been taken out of context and, um, you know, it's been assigned a new word. Like it was maybe immorality and they turned it into, they translated it in modern day text to be homosexuality. And so for some reason, um, I was wondering if you could speak to that or, or talk about, um, I just would love to revisit that conversation because I remember it stood out to me in, that time in my life and really helped me. Yeah. Um, so there are, there are only so many clobber verses. I mean, right. it, it's really quite, you could read aloud. I don't think we should do it, right. but we could read aloud to each other in the space of, you know, five or 10 minutes, all of the verses that have been used um, to condemn gay identity. Right. And, um, good footnotes and good scholarship is really all you need. Um, There's also a sense in which clobber verses, other clobber verses for other issues have been used to suggest that black people are um, not human and other verses, which read in outside of context have been, have seemed on the face of it to endorse slavery Mm -hmm. to suggest that slaves are just there to obey their masters. And of course, there are verses that can be read to suggest that women should not ever have authority over yeah. a man. <laughs> yep. And that women- um, need Are property, to essentially. <laughs> yeah, property. Yeah. So we have a lot of things going on in the world, the ancient world, out of which the Bible arises. Um, And we get to read closely so that we can see places where Paul or Jesus or the prophet Isaiah are challenging um, the given norms rather than um, accepting them. Mm. And um, I I will, I I won't, I mean, I'll speak specifically to particular verses if you want me to, um, but I will say of the verses that when, when you read them, um, with proper context and with proper scholarship, they do all come down to justice. Pedophilia is condemned. Right. R- rape is condemned. Sex trafficking, uh, all of that. Is condemned. So, and, and you can find, I mean, tragically, catastrophically in our day, um, you can find people with great power um, who insist on reading those verses as a condemnation of homosexuality. Um, but increasingly that's changing. And um, one can find churches increasingly that are affirming mm-hmm. of um, all gay people. Um, within, I'm at Belmont right now and within blocks of where I'm sitting, there's a Baptist church with two female ministers one associate, one lead pastor, and that lead pastor is a gay woman. Um, 
It's awesome. So much, so much depends on who we're talking to and so much depends on who we kind of defer to. And my job in that Bible class that you were in, I think, is to kind of embolden and encourage people to never let someone else tell them what the Bible says, mm. but to instead research these things yourself, which, which you did, um, and which we can all do. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a great answer. And yeah, I just, I want to thank you for that time. Cause I mean, I, I don't particularly, this is another thing I was reading about you before when I was preparing for this interview. Sure. Um, I don't really consider myself religious, but I do consider myself spiritual. Mm. And in preparing for this interview, you were talking about um, in your book, I guess, the sacredness of questioning everything. Um, You say that the act of questioning religion isn't of itself religious. And I thought that was really interesting, um, especially with me not necessarily identifying with religion and you know there's Mm -hmm. obviously some trauma and some walls built up there where i don't necessarily feel um safe maybe is the word to call myself religious but i do feel safe um and confident to call myself spiritual so i just thought i would i would love to hear your further thoughts on that because i think that's a really i want to i want to express admiration for you in your own process of getting clear of some things. The safety question is major. Um, When we're talking about traditions or communities that create a sense of bodily fear or shame or anxiety, um, part of evolving is, um, I suppose, remaining open to talking to people to an extent but also getting clear of toxic relationships and toxic conception of ourselves and others. Um, So the I'm spiritual, but I don't think I'm religious is a legitimate um, self-description, a necessary self-description, especially if everything that we think of when we think of religion connotes abuse and exclusion Mm -hmm. and, um, telling you to pipe down and quit asking your questions. Mm -hmm. I say all of that to say that if religion, I I try to define religion very broadly. I think that um, capitalism is the the most powerful world religion that we Mm -hmm. have right now. I guess you could say consumerism as well. When I say religion, I'm not just referring to who does and doesn't believe in God. I'm referring to a controlling story, whatever that might be. So my definition of religion is, perceived necessity. And with that, religion or religions are whatever cultures happen to have power in any given context. So to this questioning thing, it was Karl Marx who said um, that critiquing religion, the critique of religion is prerequisite to every critique. Whenever you're criticizing any social form, any institution, any pledge of allegiance, you are taking on religion, whether it's nationalism, white supremacy, Mm. fundamentalism, whatever that might be. So I've found it helpful. I try to not be too pushy about it. And I probably am pushy about it sometimes to never speak of religion as something that it's only other people are dealing with. Um, Religion is culture and we never get out of culture. Um, we're always cultivating in one way or another. You and I saw each other at Bonnaroo. You knew me well enough to know that it was maybe no surprise that I was there. Mm -hmm. But Bonnaroo, conventionally speaking, doesn't have anything to do. I mean, Bonnaroo is where you go to escape Bible, to Mm -hmm. escape religion. But Bonnaroo to me is its own culture, a very free, really holy. I mean, they're making a lot of money, but it's also (laughs) holy in a way. Because it is this open, impromptu community um, where things are going to get said and sung and witnessed. And um, yeah, so it, and I, I will say true religion, good religion, is based in questions, is based in skepticism, is based in inquiry. Whereas bad religion, or I would even say false religion, 
is a monologue, is shutting people down, is trying to control people. Hmm. There's something authoritarian in bad religion, but true religion comes down to freedom and love and being able to say what we see. So I try to let religion be culture, and I try to make a distinction between bad, death-dealing, shame-centered religion and true, righteous, liberating religion. Because I do kind of see, whether it's Bonnaroo or Doctor Who or Kendrick Lamar, I see religion um, everywhere because I see people dealing with stuff everywhere. And religion is kind of the, the moral memory of humankind. And um, it's kind of what we have to work with. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I've never, um, I've never thought of Bonnaroo and thought it, it could be considered religion, <laughs> I guess. Well, Bonnaroo has very solid reasons to avoid that stigma. Bonnaroo isn't exactly preaching anything unless it's preaching Grateful Dead, make love, not war. I mean, there's right. to me, Bonnaroo is love and freedom. Um, and that's, that's right. So Bonner, yeah, and Bonnaroo stands on a trajectory um, with rock and roll, with country music, with the romantic poets, with the blues, jazz, all of that. It is marketed, but it is also in, a, in an age where there aren't a lot of stadium acts anymore and there's hardly any radio anymore. Bonnaroo is this hearkening back to when MTV played videos and we all knew the same songs. Right. So, so Bonnaroo is actually, to me, a really important um, event on the level of an annual Woodstock type thing. Yeah. Um, people die at Bonnaroo. <laughs> Things go badly. Um, but I think ultimately it's, it's a gift um, to the human species. I don't know. I love, I love your fascination with culture. Mm -hmm. It's like they almost intersect um, in your mind, culture and uh, church or God. Yeah, well, there's no separation. Um, I should say I grew up in church. I'm still a member of a church. But the idea that my love of Star Trek or Public Enemy had to uh, stay out of the church or it was totally separate from what was happening when I read the Bible, I, I was familiar with that dichotomy. It's been pushed on me. It's pushed on me now. But I refuse that dichotomy mm. with everything I have. Like, I, I couldn't live with myself if I thought that the Sermon on the Mount um, was the opposite of, um, you know, a good novel or a good Joni Mitchell album. It's right. all cosmic. It's all cosmic plane speak to me. And um, the great artists that I admire understand this. But right. it's not a hard argument for them. It's it's known um, that we're trying to traffic in a deeper awareness of the holy and the sacred um, in all creative work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I definitely feel like I don't necessarily access God, or to me, the feeling of God is anything good. So when I feel. Yeah present in the world or when I feel love from a friend um, or yeah, I mean, I, that's, or, or I'm just alone silent in nature or I'm listening to, like you said, a Joni Mitchell album or a great mm -hmm. album. I, I feel spiritual. Um, and yeah, well, that's I think, solid. That, that is the way to be. The scripture does not testify to the existence of a God that is separated from goodness, from peace, from human love. In, in fact, the scripture um, is very often rather um, harsh, suggesting that if you say you love God, but you don't love anybody, um, you're lying. Mm. All, all this, And in fact, you only love God as much as you love the people around you. Um, so there's all these ethical um, sayings collected in scripture that really back up what you're saying, that God is present in community. God is present in relationship. Now, of course, there's people who quote the Bible out of context or claim to own what a biblical worldview is or what the Bible teaches. And very often that heavy-handed um, dogma 
is something very different from what is actually in the Bible. Wow. Yeah. I feel like, um, I feel like my, my new interpretation or just my adult interpretation of who Jesus might've been, mm-hmm. um, is I grew up thinking that, I don't know. I don't think I thought about politics when I was younger, but yeah. now that I'm older, I'm sort of like, wow, Jesus was a radical progressive dude mm-hmm. for, for the poor and pushing, yeah. trying to push um, the powers that be to stop oppressing people. And mm-hmm. uh, like you mentioned, Sermon on the Mount, you know, blessed mm-hmm. be the poor for they will inherit the earth. Yeah. Um, and the same people that, I don't want to demonize anyone here, but the same people that will, you know, preach to you about um, homosexuality being a sin. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you hear those same people saying, blessed be the poor, for they will inherit the earth. Yeah, that's true. There, I, there's, I, I that, wonder how your, um, your views about how politics, I know this is a hard topic to navigate, but I'm sure you have talked about it before. Yeah, I'm ready. Um, Yes. How do politics in modern day, how does religion and God and the Bible um, play both a negative and positive role in politics today? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a, that's great, a loaded question. question. <laughs> no, that's great. I love that you threw in the negative and positive at right. the end. Um, like religion, um, politics is everywhere. Um, to me, my, my same little push and we could use the word spiritual instead of religious, that you're never not being spiritual. You're never not being religious. I want to say you're never not being political. Wherever two or more are gathered, politics. So when on the news we hear a politician say, this is more about politics than policy, it's like, it's all about politics. What do you think the word policy is? Um <laughs> Right. So we're always, and I, in the same way that I don't think that there is a human being who is more or less political than someone else. I don't think there's anyone who's more or less religious than someone else. We're all human beings. We're all somebody in a body. And we're trying to figure out how to organize ourselves and how to exercise self-care and neighbor love simultaneously, how to be people of empathy. Um, you are right um, that it is often the ones who refuse to reckon with the politics of Jesus, the politics of the kingdom of God that Jesus announced, who are also villainizing um, gay people and even in our own state legislature trying to pass laws. They didn't do this so much under Trump, but they're doing it now because it's like there's a vacuum Mm. and they're using um, these little, these misunderstandings about human beings to accrue more power for themselves. Um, do you think it's a way yes. to like pander to a certain audience? I mean, Absolutely. you know, Absolutely. it's like these people are pro-life. There's, they're looking at it like almost like a graph or a number chart. Like I can get this many votes if I pander to this audience about this issue. That's exactly um, right. And, and it's all connect- The word intersectionality is a way of recognizing that everything is connected to everything else. Right. So you're talking pro-life and you're talking anti-gay and anti-trans, it is all one effort to pander. And I think to weaponize people's despair and confusion. If you're having a hard time pronouncing um, an immigrant's name, um, you can either struggle with that um, and figure out how to pronounce it, or you can develop a slow revulsion (laughs) toward every human being that makes you think languages, that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I, I see hope in the Bible, obviously, because I think that the Bible and those who take the Bible seriously um, will call for just inclusive policies, um, what you referred to as progressive. Um, and I think that's really positive. And it can, and it can make for some... Uh, Beautiful and messy alliances. The people who were part of the Ida B. Wells Plaza effort, there were people who believed in God. There were people who don't. Mm -hmm. Um, 
there were people who are like PhD students in a chemistry program at Vanderbilt and people who are working at a Walmart. I mean, you had folks who were, it was a beautifully diverse situation and there was prayer. I prayed with folks there more than once. Um, But those who don't believe in prayer or don't believe in God at all did not appear to be thrown or upset. Right. Got a little Jesus-y, especially because the Jesus-y God stuff was part of the hungering and thirst after after righteousness. That's Jesus's phrase um, that is not overly worried about um, particular dogmas. So the politics of righteousness um, is the politics of the kingdom of God, is the politics of, to borrow John Lewis's phrase, beloved community. When we say beloved community, we are including um, the people who are getting knocked around by the highway troopers because they don't want to let us on the Capitol grounds. Mm -hmm. But beloved community is also the troopers themselves who are not happy to be being used as almost, almost like armed um, thugs in a way for representatives who don't want to talk to people that Mm -hmm. it was beautiful to me to sometimes see that those troopers would acknowledge um, with their their humanity a little bit. That's right. So, so that was kind of the job. That is a politics, a beloved community. I, I overheard, I was there when um, we, the pandemic had started. Um, these troopers had been told to get right up next to Justin Jones as he was sitting there on a wall. And um, we started pointing out that the trooper needed to socially distance. Justin Jones did not pose any kind of threat to the Capitol or anyone in there. And it's like, we need you to give him six feet and we need you to put on a mask. And so then you kind of had this, they know that their employers are us. So whoever's told them to not socially distance in violation of Mayor Cooper's law, Mm. our law, who's ever told them to not wear a mask. It's like, you're not even, you're not serving at this point. You're not being your best self. And eventually they did put on a mask. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was a, a strange negotiation, but the job in that moment, and this is kind of where we get into that question of the sacred and the holy, is to treat the person, even if it's a person who won't talk to you, as a fellow human being. The right. job is to to stand where you must stand and be human there. And um, I think that's what the biblical witness calls for. It's what genuinely progressive politics calls for. So for me, religion in that sense is is a positive. But of course, when the state legislature wants to make the Bible the state book without looking hard at what Jesus teaches. Is what it what um, it actually says. <laughs> yeah, that's that's where it gets really, really messy. So that's the Bible getting used for somebody as a way of abusing or asserting control over others. And um, that's messed up, but we have the prophets who tell us how to address these things. We have Jesus who tells us to love our enemy, um, even when our enemies are disgracing themselves in some way. Um, So I see a lot of hope in that vision of beloved community in all of these um, kerfuffles. Kerfuffles, yes. Yeah, there were were a lot of those this summer, and... um, I don't know. It's so hard for me. Um, I know, obviously, the Bible tells us to love our enemy, but I mean, things get tense. And it's Uh like, it's this summer, it's like, how do you speak to someone who isn't willing to listen? Um, I don't know when each side is like up in each other's face. I mean, I don't know. Um, And I mean, I even have difficulty speaking like with my parents about politics and yeah. and navigating those conversations in a loving way yeah. uh, is really, really, really difficult. It is. And let me say it doesn't get easier. Yeah. Um, it happens that my mother um, is the most faithful church attender I know, and she's a lifelong Democrat. So she is part of that older generation. She's 79. Um, who voted for Jimmy Carter, 
um, who's always gone to church, um, but she has never, it happens that she's never been impressed with any Republican in office. I think this is the first time in our talk that I've mentioned Republicans and Democrats. Um, I don't want to polarize anyone, but I'm just right. mentioning that my mother, um, yeah, my mother is a very traditional, even conservative Christian, if by conservative we mean trying to conserve the possibility of looking after people, of people having what they need to live. So mm. I, I want to say that my mother isn't somebody that I get into a tussle with in that regard, but with family members who are anti-vaxxers at this stage, mm. um, family members who I don't have, I don't think I have family members who supported the domestic terror attack on the Capitol in yeah. January. But I would have family members who would describe Joe Biden as a baby killer and um, all Democrats in that way. And I think all we can do in those moments is um, try to slow the tape, try to find things that we can agree on, whether it's an old movie or a song mm. or a sports team, and then try to avoid um, answering questions that they haven't asked us. You know, you don't want to push it if you can help it. Right. Um, and try to communicate respect and affirmation when and where we can, um, rather than turning, letting every meeting or every meal turn into a kind of blowout. Um, but at the same time, we do have to honor our own boundaries. And if all a family member is bringing is condemnation and negation and judgment, um, I, don't, I think we are called to wish people well and to be at peace with people in as much as we can, but we aren't called to sit still for abuse. Um, right. I mean, it's that idea right. of complacency and that's right. you know, I feel like res our responsibility as, like you said, yeah, you have privilege as a white male religion uh -huh. professor at a university. I have privilege um, as a white, as a white girl. I don't, you know, I don't get harassed by the cops. Um, yeah. And, and it's like within our own families and within our own friend groups and just yeah, you're right. It's not an option to say nothing when so when someone says something that challenges um, a moral code that you mm -hmm. live by, or something that endangers someone else's life. Right. Right. So that, that, <laughs> yes, that the last four years have been really um, instructive to me in the sense of I might want to let some things go. But if someone is spreading disinformation or characterizing um, a minority group or uh, um, yeah, characterizing people in such a way that by using that language, they are putting that type of person in danger. I, I guess I could, one example would be referring to the China virus or the, mm. uh, but this in quotes, the Kung Fu virus. Oh, yeah. So when people speak that way, we have found that they are inciting violence against Asian people. Mm -hmm. And um, it's tough. We want to avoid conflict. We don't want to turn everything into a fight. But increasingly, I think that I am complicit if I let people speak that way in my presence and I don't challenge it in any way. There's the question of what I normalize. I've had, this is kind of moving around, but I've had friends that are in relationships and um, like if I have a, a woman that is a friend and she brings the boyfriend around <laughs> and the boyfriend is, is abusive or is toxic, I don't want to be part of normalizing that relationship. Right. I want to, I want to speak rather than just kind of letting it pass. And I think there's something roughly equivalent with that in our day in the way people have a go at um, whatever the group of people are. And uh, so-and-so's woke or the left. I mean, that goes back to the Ida B. Wells Plaza stuff because I am I have people my own age who saw the news reports and thought, yeah, that crowd was crazy. And I was able to say, well, actually, if you look really closely, You'll I see me. <laughs> yeah. And I can tell you that, that, yes, we were following some state legislatures 
legislators to their car to talk to them. Um, we were maybe even scolding them a little while following them. But they are our representatives. Yeah. The idea that we're being violent when we're asking them to not vote to make it a crime for us to gather outside the Capitol, we may not be wearing suits and ties, but there's a power differential here. They have the power which we've given them right. to make laws on our behalf. And it is and we our pay job. them. We pay them taxes. That's right. It is our civic duty to make sure that they don't do and say things with our presumed consent that, that we don't want them to do and say. I, I got a little more heated than I'm comfortable with in my description of Donald Trump in various figures um, over the last four years. But my relationship with Donald Trump is different from my relationship with Jimmy Fallon. Donald Trump was the commander in chief of the United States military. Mm. Donald Trump is my president. I'm not going to say that I own the military, but the, what the military does, it does with my presumed consent via my elected officials. So it did, and I, and I hope this isn't too offensive to listeners, but it was very important to me to describe the president of the United States as a verified sexual assailant. Yeah. We had the recording. Um, the when you're a star, they let you do it. And once that recording was public record and he became president anyway, I felt that my job um, was to keep that in mind as we managed his tenure, because I share custody. I now share custody of Joe Biden mm -hmm. with you. But for right. four years, you and I shared custody of Donald Trump, Mike Pence, everyone in Congress, everyone on the cabinet. So if we really, if we are America and we are a democracy and we're responsible for what our government does on our behalf, it is sometimes morally necessary um, to place ourselves in the path of our own representatives, um, right. especially when they're passing legislation that abuses our fellow citizens. Right. And I think holding people accountable mm -hmm. is, is what gets misconstrued sometimes as tyranny or um i don't know demonization it it's That's like right. what we were doing at ida b wells plaza was holding people accountable for yes. a for a job that we technically employ them to do that's right um we so, pay them our employees and then we were painted as you know anarchists or an angry mm -hmm. mob um, by the people we were paying right by the people we were paying and i think you and I, with the color of our skin, get away with not being painted as an angry mob, angry mob as much as yeah. as much as a peaceful group of a Black Lives Matter protest that might be majority Black people, or they deal with that way more than you and I would deal with that. So that's why it is so important for mm -hmm. us to stand in solidarity with with minority groups. It is, and less than a year ago, so we can give uh, it context. That's <laughs> right. That we ask are the questions. Witnesses. We are there to say, no, this is what was happening. And we did have a march organized by Metro school students of, um, yeah. I don't know many. 4, I mean, it was, it was people or something. Yeah, that was a record breaking gathering. Um, For high, like four high school girls that organized right. that whole thing. But it, it is Lamar Alexander, our senator at the time, said something. But Marsha Blackburn and Bill Lee, our mm -hmm. governor and our senator, managed to not acknowledge that event. It would be too costly to them, I guess, to recognize that that occurred in Nashville. Um, but it's beautiful that it occurred and it needs mm -hmm. to, it needs to happen again. It happened during a pandemic, yeah. which is still going. Um, yep. But yeah, so our job, I was, I was moved to be a part of that. And much of the summer was checking in on those folks and bringing in bottled water. I took my son to, I never spent the night in the plaza, but I was part of some of those evening meetings and it remains some of the most inspiring moments of my life. Um, to have my 15 year old son with me being supported um, by these folks who had been there for, it ended up being two months. Um, 
he'll never forget that. And he will, he'll always know that people have the power to wrestle the earth from fools. That's awesome. So what was happening at Ida B. Wells Plaza you would consider to be religious? <laughs> yeah, well, songs and prayer right. and conversation and um, kind of like a, a book club. There was yoga. I mean, <laughs> That's it was, awesome. Yeah, it was like Bonnaroo in a lot of ways. There were talent shows um, yeah. and people were getting fed. Homeless folks were getting food and water. It was a teach-in. Um, there was an effort just to make more people aware. That's awesome. And um, it got criminalized. And um, yeah, I that um, so you're talking about the idea of good church and bad church. Yeah. Um, and um, I mean, I think bad church is obviously demonizing people and criminalizing people for crimes that should not be criminalized. Um, I mean, let's just say people that have minor, you know, marijuana charges that yeah. um, that are part of a minority group that gets these crazy long sentences. I mean, do you do you run into that when you go and and teach at the prisons? Like, are there yeah. people there that are caught in this ridiculous web of I don't know? Yeah, the drug war. Yeah. Yeah, it's, they are not, I, I have had students, and I try to speak of my students, especially in the incarcerated setting, as mentors. I'm not going in there as the light bringer who's going right. to show them what's what, but I am going to help them as much as I can as we read together and write together and work toward a degree. Um, but they are mostly nonviolent offenders. And they are mostly people of color. Right. So that film, um, 13th, which people can watch on Netflix, there is a sense in, and there's a book called The New Jim Crow um, by Michelle Alexander. It is a kind of for-profit prison thing um, with lobbyists who are trying to get laws passed that will fill the beds of these prison complexes. And... Um, yeah, I'm something of an app. I, I think that people sometimes need to be contained. But when I would drive home, I really didn't think that hardly anyone in that classroom needed, needed to be there. And it was they are all student philosophers like me. And um, there are dark forces and there are profiteers who um, essentially monetize um, other people's pain and tragedy and all of that. Um, so, yeah, and, and there's efforts to uh, change the criminal sentencing um, so that more people can get out. Um, but, yeah, yeah, 13th is the film that I think of on this because the 13th Amendment did not get rid of slavery. Mm -hmm. It got rid of slavery for people who haven't been charged with a crime. Mm. But if you've been charged with crime, um, you they are just a stick it in the small print and make it easier yeah. to be charged with even minor crimes. They can lock yeah. more people up and make more money. Yeah. Um, it's just absolutely that is bad church. I mean, it's the opposite. Yeah, it's uh, not church. It's, it's a demonic stronghold. And yeah, me, it's it's the authoritarianism that you were sort of speaking to earlier. Yeah. Um, so any church organization that has members who push that kind of legislation have a witness problem. They actually have a baptism problem, if you like, because when you're baptized, you're supposedly um, entering into a relationship of moral accountability um, with folks. But baptism for those churches that um, back that kind of thing is, I, I mean, I guess I'll call it baptism. I won't call it church exactly, because it's not part of that revolutionary movement. Um, that Jesus brought into the world. Yeah. Yes. So what, what can like, I mean, you know, it's a lot to, to take on all these problems on the shoulders of one person. Right. Um, yeah. But like, I mean, I guess besides speaking out, besides having these conversations, showing up to events, um, yeah. I don't know, how can we participate in, good church or good yeah, oh, well that's i love that question i love it 
Um, like, what do we do yeah, <laughs> about it? Yeah, it's kind of like starting a band or an art collective or a co-op. It begins with two or three people reading a really good book together. Right. So book clubs is the first thing that I think of. Or even just listening groups, going to see or, or watching a film like 13th or watching any good film or listening to any good album. You try to be and you try to support every form of thoughtful culture there is. And um, that can be free the plaza. It can be the Ida B. Wells Plaza stuff, but it can be volunteering for a literacy program at a school. It can be working at a library. It can be, um, yeah, Nashville is just full of righteous, righteous efforts um, to overcome injustice and to differently order our existence together. And often churches, um, affirming churches, um, churches with, yeah, churches are pretty great when they are churches. Right. There's, There's really, really good ones. And there are at least, you know, 10 or 12 totally awesome churches in Nashville that I would recommend to anyone. Um, yeah, so they're everywhere. It's not yeah. quite throw your rock and you, it is the case, throw a rock and you'll hit a church in Nashville, practically. Um, but there are really, really solid efforts wherever you have a group of even five or six people who are determined to be good to each other. Um, you have some form of communal righteousness and encouragement and you can, um, start there. That's awesome. And I have one more question for you and then I'll let you go. This, this is, you know, this is an attempt for me to sort of, um, yeah, I don't know, start conversations that with people of faith where I have built up walls, um, Mm. and, and try to tear those walls down and try to, um, ask questions because I don't know the answers. And yes, I wanted to circle back to the clobber verses because, um, there was a time in my life where I really did not know how to defend myself when it came to people that were demonizing literally my existence. Um, what, what would you say to, to, to an LGBT person, LGBTQ person who is trying to righteously and respectively defend themselves against someone who is demonizing their existence. Yes. Okay. I would say I have a few things. Okay. A few little quick ones. No one is an authority in someone else's experience. And I'll put it a different way. Nobody is an expert in someone else's experience. So when people come at you with Bible verses, or say the Bible this, the Bible that, or tradition this, tradition that. Um, we don't have to, yeah, I mean, you don't, hmm. there's a place for, for walking away, but there's also, we can say things like, would you like to put that statement in the form of a question? You know, would you like to ask me about how I feel about God, mm-hmm. my own life, my own desires, my own body? Um, that's one way of not exactly turning the other cheek in a kind of passive way, but just trying to get somebody to throw the ball back in some way. Um, but if, so if someone that, were to quote Leviticus at me, you know, and say, yeah. it says in Leviticus, a man yeah. who lies with another man is an abomination or whatever the verse says. Yeah. How, I would, how would, I know I'm now I'm zooming in at one specific clobber yeah, yeah, verse, but yeah. how would, how, what would you respond with? <laughs> well, you have all kinds of things in Leviticus about not eating um, crustaceans, not eating pork. Right. It's like, how far do you want to go with this? Right. Do you want to take all Levitical law and make it, bring it into the 21st century and put it on other people? But ultimately, with those verses, what is being condemned is um, sex trafficking is male prostitution, female, and I want to be careful with this too, because now I say sex worker, I'm not in relationship with any sex workers, but I don't want to degrade um, sex workers either. Um, 
yeah, I want to honor the dignity and the integrity of everybody who crosses my path. So one, one quick one is what is being condemned is violence, is abuse, is disrespect. Right. And sexual desire. And I even want or to Or sexual say, orientation. <laughs> that's right. Orientation, desire, pleasure. These are all gifts of God for the people of God. Right. These good experiences um, are holy. We, we are made fearfully and wonderfully to enjoy ourselves um, respectfully and consensually. And um, I think that's a good key, consensual. That's right. <laughs> I think that's yeah, where people happen. take it out of context to mean to then apply it to a consensual adult relationship, yeah. whatever that looks like, um, and act That's as right. though it's the same thing when it's yeah, not. Yeah, so there is an effort to demonize other people's desires. I kind of want to say that desire, um, what we do with our desires, if we demean people, if we're abusive, um, we are dehumanizing ourselves and others when we're abusive. But the idea that desire is dehumanizing. I want to say, nope. Not any more than dreams. <laughs> I mean, you dream. I, I'll, I'll say in case it's helpful, I'm, I'm not ashamed. I probably was when I was younger and confused, but there's nothing shameful about a dream. A dream is just a dream. Right. And um, consensual relationships, deep communication. You all right? Yeah, I'm all right. You all right? All that kind of stuff. Right. It, it's beautiful. And, and it's rare enough in our difficult traumatized days that any kind of real love between people and of course love is is consensual i'm careful with the word love i've been married for over 20 years even now my partner and i will if i say i love you i'll sometimes say i want to love you i don't know if you feel loved by me right now i don't want to be lying when i say that i love you do you feel loved by me yes i do okay well all right. It's, it's a <laughs> right. loving good thing. Just checking. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's something that is between people. And life's too short to spend much time kind of getting in, a, to spend any time getting in on other people's experience or passing mm -hmm. judgment on other people's experience. Right. And of course, Jesus, I mean, here's a reply. Jesus didn't just say, try not to judge. Jesus said, don't judge. When you judge, the measure you, you use will be measured with on you. So judge not is a Jesus imperative that is warning us against the psychic toll of becoming obsessed with what other people are up to, mm. especially in the privacy of their own relationship. So there's a, there's a big old back off when people are coming at you with those things. Right. Um, and there's also, I will say of God, I believe in God. I think that we are all accepted by God, so accepted by God that all we can do is accept God's acceptance of us. And when somebody tries to get in the middle of that and suggest that God doesn't accept me or you, I mean, that is quite the um, trespass. Mm. That's quite the violation in terms of trying to enter into somebody else's uh, process. Mm. Um, so we can slow the tape, we can decline to get into it, and we can, we can ask questions and invite people to ask questions. Right. But once they stop asking questions, this is no longer a respectful conversation. Right. They're just asking you to sit still while And they it's not necessarily going to get anywhere. Um, that's right. Yeah. It might eventually. If they're not open to it or if either party right. isn't open to, yeah, listening. Yeah. So one way to go is, are you open to the possibility that my life in Jesus or my life in God is as solid and integrated as yours, heterosexual person? Mm -hmm. And if they're not up for that, there's not a lot to talk about because they are ultimately denying your own personhood, your own integrity as a fellow human being. Um, yeah. Does that make some sense? 
That does make sense. Yeah. Okay. I'm just trying to give listeners or people listening, maybe the tools they need to, <laughs> to uh, navigate these conversations. Cause it's hard, you know? Well, let me um, throw in a guy that I've found very helpful. There's all kinds of people who are helpful, but one that's been helpful to me is a fellow named Mel White. His son, Mike White, um, wrote the school of rock screenplay oh, yeah. and, uh, and his son, Mike White was Jack Black's roommate in School of Rock. Jack Black and Mike White, yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> Mel, Mel White, um, Mel White. Mike White's dad, um, was a minister okay. who okay. who lived decades as a kind of um, a straight minister who was struggling with homosexuality. He wrote a book, called, well, he wrote a book about the clobber passages, and he, he wrote a book about his gradual realization that his homosexuality was not a um, disorder, mm. but was an orientation right. and that it was a gift of God. And amazingly, his book, Stranger at the Gates, his ex-wife wrote the foreword. Wow. And, um, and he thanks his ex-wife. They had kids together, all of that. But he says that without his ex-wife's love, both in and out of marriage, that he prob the clobber passages would have led him to take his own life. Wow. Um, so it's a really righteous story of deep friendship relationship, which in the case of him and his ex-wife eventually had to take the turn of dissolving their um, marital relationship. But um, Mel White is, there's so many, but he's one who was one of the first people that I read um, that helped me start thinking about these things more clearly. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time, um, Dr. Dark, and uh, I hope to run into you at another um, another protest or Bonnaroo yes. or I would love um, that. yes, yes. Um, once we're all vaxxed up, and <laughs> maybe we'll see festivals start to come back, and we can participate in some good church again. <laughs> that would be lovely. Churches right. everywhere. Yes. Thank you for having me on, and thank you. Um, really grateful to be talking. Yes. See ya. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of The Recovering Catholic. I hope these conversations have been as healing for you as they have been for me. There's so much tension surrounding topics like sexual identity, politics, race, and religion. But at the core of it all is our humanity. We can attempt to communicate with people that hold opposing views without demonizing their existence. And sometimes we have to preserve our mental health by knowing the right time to walk away. If you're struggling with your mental health or want to know how to be a better ally for the LGBTQ plus community and or people of color, please visit The Trevor Project. They have a handful of resources, including a free online counseling service and a suicide hotline. I'll leave you with a quote from Mel White's book, Stranger at the Gate. Real love can't be silent in the face of injustice. Here's Fight the Power by Public Enemy. Yet our best trained, best educated, best equipped, best prepared troops refuse to fight. Matter of fact, it's safe to say that they would rather switch than fight. Let's be
Catholic is presented by Osiris Media, hosted and produced by Katie Pruitt, edited by Justin Thomas, mixed and mastered by Guy Fell and Revoice Media, theme music by Katie Pruitt, distributed by Concord, artwork by Sammy Wiedeberg. This episode features original music by Elton John and Public Enemy. Osiris.